If you can turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 25, I'll just pray and get underway today. Matthew 25 verse 1. I'm not going to read this long passage because it's about the um, the wise and foolish virgins, which uh, most of us know, but I just want to talk about it because it's so, I think it's a really insightful parable. So let me just pray and we'll, we'll get underway. Father God, I pray for your mighty anointing, Father. Father, we pray above all things that you would be present with us, Father, because anything less than that is a complete waste of, of time. So, Father, we know that only you can make the difference in our lives. We're not here to see any person. We're literally here to meet with you, Father. And all we desire is that you speak to us and that you speak through us today and that let you, let you be the one that's glorified. Just pray that your Holy Spirit would come down in our midst in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so water is my fuel, unfortunately, on these things. So I'm always carrying water around with me. Okay, Matthew 25. The um, you know the the parable itself is, to my mind, something that can be extremely shocking because I believe it's aimed mostly at Christians. Uh, we have a lot of evidence that. Um, Jesus aimed quite a number, especially of his latter parables, at the very disciples and their followers, those who would follow after. In other words, Christian people, church people, people that were believers. Uh, The reason that's shocking is because it's really talking about a dividing that occurs at the end of time, uh, where many people who thought they belong and thought they were fine and think everything's rosy and they're comfortably headed for the kingdom of heaven suddenly find that is utterly not the case. So for that reason, I think it's incredibly important for us to always uh, be mindful of parables like that. Um, the sheep and the goats is another one that I believe has a great deal of application Uh, the parable of the unprofitable servant. All of these are found in Matthew 25. In all cases, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and really, by extension, he's speaking to all of us. So so what happens um, with the wise and foolish virgins? Let me just take a drink here. Is that going to sit? Yes. We'll find out. I won't jump up and down too much. That'll do it. Um, So what's happening with the wise and foolish virgins? We're told in the parable um, that uh, all of them are expecting the bridegroom. Okay, Non-Christians don't do that. Every one of the five wise and the five foolish virgins are expecting the bridegroom to come. Not only are they expecting him, they expect that they themselves, all of them, belong in the marriage with him, right? So they're expecting him to arrive, and it says, while he delayed his coming, they all slumbered and slept. Okay, so everybody is in this waiting for the bridegroom to come. Now, there's only one significant difference between the two groups. The 
the wise ones have gone and made sure that their lamps and their flasks are full of oil. They can top up uh, their fire at all times. Why? The oil is, you know, they haven't literally have an abundance of it. Okay? There's only that difference. The foolish virgins, when the cry goes up that the bridegroom is coming, suddenly those foolish virgins literally start awake and say, oh my goodness, we're running out of oil. Let us rush off and try and find some. Meanwhile, the bridegroom comes. He says, oh, uh, welcome, you ones that are ready. I will receive you into my kingdom. He enters into the marriage supper, and it says the door is shut. I think some of the most ominous words in Scripture, actually. Why are they ominous? Because they're actually applying to people that we all think are safe. Okay, It could be the person that we're sitting next to in church every week. It could be people that know the words to... 50 old hymns by heart. Could be people that put uh, money in the offering every week and think they're absolutely fine with God. Why? Because they go to a good church, hear good sermons, um, do all the Christian things, even go to the prayer meeting, whatever it is, and all is well. Lo and behold, what do we find just with this one difference that the oil is not topped up like it should be? They don't have spare oil to keep that lamp burning bright. The fire is not there. The oil is not there. We know what those things represent in Scripture, particularly the oil is almost always the Holy Spirit, okay, in Scripture. So they're finding that an an end-time judgment that is far more severe than anybody thought possible is literally taking place because we've come to a place in the modern church where Jesus is just our pal and our buddy But we've forgotten that Jesus is also the King of Kings, the Judge of all the earth. That he's returning not as a lamb this time, he's returning as a righteous judge. We hardly ever speak on judgment in the modern church. Why? Because we think it'll drive people away. It's not a popular message. Do you realize that part of the foundation, I'm sure you've heard of the the six foundations before, well, the last of those foundations is eternal judgment. Okay, if you ever, if you ever, um, we might look at the scripture later, but if you're ever wanting to know, okay, what are the foundations of the faith? If I want to talk to someone about the foundations of the faith, you go to Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2, and it tells you the six foundations. What is the sixth of those foundations? Eternal judgment. If we're not preaching about eternal judgment, what happens to people? They start to take Christianity lightly. They start to take their faith less seriously than they should. They start to think, oh, well, um, the consequences aren't that bad. God is so kind and merciful, surely I'll be fine, even though I have this hidden sin in my life or whatever it is. They say, no, I think God is so lovey-dovey, you know, I call it the lovey-dovey gospel that we preach today. Vastly different from what was preached in revivals down through history, where these guys preach more like John the Baptist, right? So if you want to, if you want to hear a piercing word, you just go to any revival in history and, and, and listen to or you know, read a John Wesley sermon, for instance, or a George Whitfield sermon, my goodness, or just about peel the paint off the walls. Um, 
they were more in the mold of a John the Baptist, and in fact, the disciples were more in the mold of a John the Baptist than we think. So it's not surprising that on, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and what does it say about the preaching? It says, they were cut to the heart. This is why 3,000 people are getting saved that day. It's not because they suddenly thought it's a good idea to become a Christian. No, they are so convicted in their heart, cut to the heart it says. It says they cried out to the apostles, what shall we do? What was the first word Peter replied with? The word repent. So these things are slowly being lost out of the modern gospel. And in so doing, you know, we're losing historical Christianity. We can't get by on experiences. We can't get by on happy clappy. You know, I've been part of the charismatic Pentecostal world just about all my life. And uh, my view of it is that it has gone downhill for years. Absolutely downhill for years. We're seeing less of the gifts of the Holy Spirit moving. We're seeing uh, less powerful salvations. We are certainly not preaching repentance like the, like the old guys used to. I don't think we even preach repentance like Derek Prince used to do. And I don't think he thought of himself as a, as a repentance guy. Not really. But back in the 70s, these guys were everywhere still preaching repentance. It's basically vanished. Do you know what vanishes when, when repentance vanishes out of the church and out of our gospel? I tell you, the whole gospel vanishes. Because this is the doorway into a real conversion. If I'm not truly repentant, if I'm not pierced to the heart by my sins, if I'm not ready to be absolutely convicted and then truly changed by God, this is no conversion. It's just a happy little day. We bring people down the front. We say, pray this little prayer after me. Everybody prays it. How many are actually deeply converted? That's an excellent question. The statistics show that between 5 and 10% are still around. You know, when they do a mass evangelistic crusade, only between 5 and 10% who pray that little prayer are still around in the church circles three months later. That's the statistics that we have. What does that mean? 90% have disappeared. Where have they gone? Well, were they ever converted? That's the number one question. Because I can follow anybody in a rote prayer doesn't mean I've really changed my heart, have I? Doesn't mean I've repented of my sin. Doesn't mean I even think that sin is that bad, right? So in losing these fundamental things out of our gospel, number one, we're nothing like the preachers of old. We're nothing like the apostles and we're nothing like the revivalists that have dotted our history. We're nothing like those guys, but not only that, we are foolishly losing the very parts of the gospel that our society today most needs because they absolutely need to be convicted of sin more today than they have probably in our whole history of our countries, right? New Zealand is exactly as comfortable as Australia is. Lukewarmness is our number one problem in the church, apathy. So what, what is going on with this parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Okay, so we got to the point where the door is shut. Who has gone in at this point? Only the wise ones who had ample oil and the, the ability to keep the fire burning. 
right? Those five have gone in. What's happened with the other five? Well, they're still away trying to find oil, and now they come back and they start banging on the door. Jesus comes to the door and leaning over it, suddenly they're finding not a friendly buddy pal Jesus, but he says to them, well, firstly they say, let us in. What's their attitude here? They're definitely church people, Christian, you could say, quote-unquote, Christian people, absolutely. Why? They believe they belong in there. They're not the rapists and murderers who, who they're figuring, oh, that's who God will judge. No, these are good Christian folk, you could say. They're respectable people. The only thing they lacked was some oil in their lamp. They've gone away to get it. They've come back. They say, let us in, Jesus. What does Jesus say to them? Absolutely shocking words. I don't even know who you are, is what he says to them. I don't even know who you are. Get away from me. can't remember if it says it in this parable. It starts talking about the, the place of wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it is that parable. Why do people gnash their teeth? They gnash their teeth in terrible regret. Gnashing of teeth is something you do when you have just about made it. You imagine the Olympian athlete. They have just about made the gold medal, and they've fallen only centimeters short, right? And they'll go away just about kicking themselves out of frustration. Now, that's a very, uh, by comparison with this, that's an unserious problem. Why? These people have a tremendously serious problem. They're going away into a place of darkness when they really were called to a place of tremendous light. Their eternal destiny is at stake, despite the fact they call themselves Christians. They probably all prayed that little prayer. They probably all go to church every week. What is making the difference with these people? You see, I put it to you this, that we just lost half the church, right? If that parable has any accuracy to it or any you know, actuality to it, we literally lost half the church in one hit. They're just gone. Only half of the Christian people, the church people, are actually entering into that door. And the rest are literally turned away. The door is shut on them. Not only that, they are told, I don't know you. Who are you people? I don't know you. Depart from me. Amen? This puts us in mind, of course, of the number of times where Jesus said a similar thing. Not just in parables, but actually very directly. So I'm thinking, you know, of um, Matthew chapter 7, where uh, Jesus said, Not all those who call me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Right? And then he talks about people that have prophesied in his name, cast out demons in his name. Now, I believe in prophecy, and I believe in casting out demons. I was actually preaching about that kind of stuff this morning, saying we need more of it. We need more miracles, not less miracles. But here's the thing. These people are relying on that stuff to get them in. And what does he say at the end of that? He says, depart from me. This is Matthew chapter 7. He says, depart from me, you that are workers of iniquity. 
What is he putting, putting his finger on? He's putting his finger on their heart issues before him, right? He's saying, well, on the outside, you look fine. On the outside, you look great. In fact, you're putting on a great old show out here, you know, casting out demons every so often and prophesying in church. My goodness, isn't that fantastic? But what he's really interested in is the state of our hearts before him. Amen? Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't it true that if, unless I get up in front of Jesus on Judgment Day with an actual white robe, I'm not talking about a spotted robe, I'm talking about an actual white robe washed in the blood of the Lamb, isn't that what it's all about? If I get up there with anything else, or if I've allowed spots to come upon my conscience and upon that robe that he gives us, what on earth should my fate be? Well, we're talking about a holy God, right? We're not talking about, you know, some guy that's just going to come along winking at sin. You know, God paid the most extraordinarily awful price to get rid of that sin. He sent his only son down to die agonizingly to get rid of sin. Not to make me happy, not to uh, give me a nice time. Not to buy me nice things, not to, be, uh, to have a comfortable life. No, none of that really matters at the end of the day. I won't be thinking about those things on Judgment Day. My one issue will be, have I been truly washed in the blood of the Lamb? Is that garment spotless or is it not? Amen? I mean, you can imagine a billionaire... You know, let's imagine... Uh, Say Bill, well, I think this is, yep. You imagine, let's say, Bill Gates or someone of that ilk, okay? He arrives up there on Judgment Day, and let's say he has not become a Christian. So he arrives up there on Judgment Day, and let's say he's got 40, 60 um, billion dollars to his name. I've got no idea. But let's say that's what he's got. And it suddenly dawns on him that every house that he's bought, every uh, charity even that he started, every car that he owns, every company he owns, really matters absolutely nothing. Why? Because he does not have the white robe that is the only ticket in. And this is the day of all days. This is the day of judgment when the great king sits upon his great white throne and unless you make it past that point you are absolutely eternally had it and realizing this and being a smart man he immediately goes oh my goodness an entire life lived for nothing or for next to nothing because I selfishly lived my life for myself I bought companies, I made money, I bought houses, I did all kinds of work around the world hoping to make a difference. I've concentrated my whole life on everything apart from the one person that can save me. So he goes walking around trying to find a white robe for sale and he would go up to anybody in our little story here and let's say he goes up to a person and says, I tell you what, I'll give you $50 billion right now for a white robe. 
$50 billion. You know, he's not going to find even one person that will take him up on that offer. He says, $60 billion, my entire fortune for a white robe. Nobody's taking him up on it. Why? Because white robes are priceless. White robes are so expensive that they are literally beyond price. How much does God give them to us for? Absolutely nothing. He asks one thing of us, that we would keep ourselves unspotted from the world, as it says in James. Right? That's all he asks. That by the blood of Jesus, we would keep our conscience free of sin and that we would actually keep our conscience clear before him and walk with him just like Adam failed to do. You know, because what are we seeing restored here? What is the gospel restoring? It's restoring that state that Adam lost, that state of walking with God in the cool of the evening and being in real heart communion with him. Amen? Isn't that what, what's being restored? So that state that Adam lost when he fell and God came down for his usual walk and Adam was nowhere to be found and he's calling through the garden, Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam is hiding. Why? Adam has sin on his conscience for the first time. And human beings ever since, the same. So... With the five wise and the five foolish virgins, and with that verse in, in uh, you know, Matthew chapter 7, where the people are saying, but Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We've done many wonderful things in your name, and I'm sure they probably have. What does he say? What is his worry? What is his concern? The concern is iniquity the things in their heart that they have not put right. There's unforgiveness against certain people. There's gossip. There's lying. There's all kinds of stuff. That Christians think, oh, well, God is just this kind of pansy in the sky. He's the, he's the friendly kind of Santa Claus figure up in the sky. And we won't have to deal with that. And I say to you, that's not God. You got the wrong guy. God's not going to be like that on the day of judgment. This is a day of wrath. What does the word wrath mean? It actually really means the fierce anger of God. Is God going to be really friendly on the day of judgment? Well, he didn't sound very friendly leaning over that door and saying, I never knew you depart from me, right? And who is he talking to? Christian people. Imagine how he's going to be speaking to people that have literally raped and murdered, like this guy that just, you know, shot all these people. So people compare themselves with a guy like that, and they say, at least I'm not like so-and-so. But the thing about Christians is we actually literally have a higher calling. We literally do. Because Jesus said these words, he said, To whom much is given, much is expected. I gave my son for you, not only that, but you have come into amongst the fellowship of believers and I have given you a white robe. What on earth have you done with that gift? Right? 
You see, the entire gospel is about cleansing. The entire gospel is about the state of my heart before God. The entire gospel, if it does not include eternal judgment, is no gospel at all. If I take repentance out of the gospel, what have I just done? Lost it completely. That's what I've done. Because we're not preaching the basic foundations, and I'll I'll tell you what the foundations are so we're not looking them up. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, if you ever wanted to go and look, and I'm sure you've had this preached to you at various times. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says six foundations. What are they? These are the six foundations of the faith being laid properly inside a person, right? Repentance, faith, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those are the six foundations. If I'm not preaching repentance, number one, I'm not a Jesus-like preacher. If I'm not preaching eternal judgment, I'm missing foundations out of my message because it's in the foundations. The reason I say that is purely this. There are consequences when we start downplaying this stuff. This is the classic hallmarks of great gospel preaching. So I've spent a lot of my, you know, I've written books on revival. And when I study old revivalists, I can tell immediately this is the stuff they're preaching. They're preaching sin and righteousness and judgment. Was it popular? Sometimes not. John Wesley would get pelted with bricks. Sometimes at peril of his life, he'd be preaching in the open air in England. Right? Uh, many, many, of course, of the apostles gave their lives for their message. When we see Stephen preaching, the first martyr, when we see Stephen preaching in the book of Acts, what kind of message is he preaching? He is absolutely rebuking to the piercing of the heart every Pharisee and chief priest that's in earshot of him. What did they do? They ran at him, it says, gnashing at him, this was angry gnashing, gnashing at him with their teeth, picked up rocks and stoned him to death. How long did John the Baptist last, preaching repentance in his day? He lasted only six months. Okay, so it's not exactly, um, it's not exactly a profession that uh, you, know, you should get into on a whim and think, this is great, I'll become a repentance preacher and travel the world. (laughs) Half your luck, buddy. Not likely to win you many plaudits, but in heaven, these are the guys that matter. God knows who they are. Why? Because there's so few of them left. And sometimes all we've got, because we've never heard such preaching in our lives, many of us, We actually have to pick up old books and read about it in there and go, oh my goodness, these guys are really preaching sin, righteousness, and judgment. They're preaching convicting, convicting stuff here. And the results, what were they? Revival. Because you know what a revival is? You know, I said that this talk was going to be about personal revival. What is a personal revival? Personal revival is me getting utterly cleaned out before God and suddenly getting close to him again, right? And most places where revivals have occurred, where an outpouring of the Spirit has come, and the people, you know, 
the reaction of the people is often this. They will get on their faces before God, the holy presence of a holy God. They'll get on their faces before God and they'll say, Oh God, have mercy on me. Oh God, this is what I have done. Oh God, let me confess my sin to you. The dark things that I've hidden from even the church members that I know and my neighbors and even my husband or wife does not know these dark secrets about me. But I have kept them in my heart and I am so sorry, God. Do you know what happens when somebody goes through a massive and true repentance like that? They suddenly jump from way out here to bam, close to God in one day. Why? Because the very things that they have kept hidden and they're hanging on to, and they will not surrender those things, those are the very things keeping them distant from fellowship with God. Adam lost his place due to one thing, sin. That's it. Sin and then the consciousness of sin. He carried around with him ever after this this. Uh, terrible guilt and consciousness, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. What does Jesus do? He even takes that away. He gives us a white robe and he says, walk in it with a clean conscience. And what happens when you do that? You feel and you are walking close to Jesus exactly like he wants the gospel to do. That is the goal. Did Jesus die to make me happy? Nothing, Nothing matters. I could be a very unhappy person, but I tell you, if I make it to judgment day and I'm counted amongst the wise, I'm telling you, I'll be overjoyed. I could be unhappy for years, but if that happens, I'll be overjoyed for eternity. Happiness is not the issue. Jesus doesn't come to give us stuff. He didn't come to make me selfishly pleased with my comfortable life. None of that matters. Nothing I own matters. Remember what I said, that white robe is so priceless, God has to give it away because none of us can afford it. It is so expensive, one of those white robes is beyond the price that any billionaire on this earth can afford. It cannot be bought. But Jesus gives us the robe for free and says, walk in this righteousness It's not even your own righteousness. I'm giving it to you. I give you that robe, and I expect you to keep your conscience clear because that's the only thing that you need to do to keep it clean. Not exactly rocket science, but we do not preach it. We don't really preach on the blood of Jesus that much anymore. We might sing old hymns like, you know, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And we can sing those ancient songs and we think they're very nice, but I don't think we're preaching the kind of righteousness that Charles Finney and John Wesley preached. We're not preaching the kind of gospel that those guys preached and George Whitfield and Evan Roberts and all of these other guys that we can find through history. You'll find tremendous similarities with what they preached. Why they recovered the ancient ways is why. They had to recover the ancient gospel because it had been lost. And this is why revivals periodically would spring up. Lukewarmness, of course, is the great curse of our hour. 
When we read Revelation chapter 3, what does it say about lukewarmness? Jesus says this, Because you are neither cold nor hot, but you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Who is he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to a culture and a society just like ours, I'm telling you. If the very definition of lukewarm could be created, I think they would point the arrow at our day and our culture and our time. There has never been a more um, comfortable, uh, over-entertained, pleasure-seeking culture on this planet than what we have today. So we are the very epitome of lukewarmness, and I tell you, we are an absolute danger of that uh, that threat occurring. Very severe threat that um, Jesus gives to the lukewarm church. But of course, one of the things he says to them is, but you are blind and poor and wretched and naked. You know, when you're blind, you can't see your state. You look around you and you say, I think I'm about as good as the other people around here, so I must be fine and okay. Well, we might be about to lose half those people. Are you as okay as them? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? These are the things that the old guys used to preach. We've lost much of the gospel. I tell you what one of the reasons is, we've lost our boldness. In the face of the world preaching its garbage to us every single day on the news and on everything we look at, and the laws changing and every other thing that they do that are completely against um, the gospel and the Bible and so on, We've kind of retreated, and we've become fearful, especially of treading on their toes, and we think, well, we better make Jesus a little bit more friendly so so the world can accept him. We better make our gospel a little bit toned down or a little bit more sugary so that they can listen to it. And, uh, you know, I I just came back from Africa. I was was in Africa a few weeks ago, and um, you know what the Africans want to hear? They don't want to hear ear-tickling stuff. They want the truth. They're hungry for truth. That's why it's so refreshing going over there. And every time I get the same response in my heart, and that is, you know, I'm far more alarmed for for our own people than I am for these Africans, despite the fact they're living in poverty, they have nothing, at least they have one thing that matters to God, and that is tremendous hunger for truth. And when I come back into our countries, and you know, I've preached all around the Western nations, and it's always the same. It's actually hard to find a people that will value a piercing word. It's really difficult to find. Do you know the most valuable thing on earth is a piercing word that actually does a work in our hearts and makes us clean before God? It used to be that 150, 170 years ago, Charles Finney would go to a settlement. It's one of the most piercing, most powerful preachers ever, this guy. Okay? And uh, a real John the Baptist kind of guy, but very, very anointed of God. Right? So he'd go to a new settlement, and people would come rushing to him from neighboring settlements 
you know, he, he got married one time and he said, I was slowly making my way towards my wife. He'd been married for months by the time, you know, because every single place he even drove through, they'd come to him begging and begging and begging, please come and preach to us. These people knew full well what Charles Finney was going to preach. He was going to preach the most piercing, you know, like eye socket blasting sermon they've probably ever heard in their lives. But why is it good for us? It's good for you in the same way that a surgeon removing cancer from you is good for you. Because unless we have preachers of that ilk who have the boldness to actually say the true things and get rid of sin out of people's lives. And isn't that our job? We are the surgeons that are supposed to come along and say, the cancer is terribly serious, but there is one remedy, right? It's the word and the truth and the spirit of God. And these things can absolutely transform you if you will listen and believe. Isn't that true? We are the surgeons that are supposed to go out with tremendous boldness and say, I don't care what the culture says. We're going to preach the truth anyway, and we're going to preach the unvarnished Jesus as he really is because he's not this namby-pamby kind of hippie dude that we always present him, you know. He's not kind of prettified, fair-haired, you know, sometimes you go to Africa and on, the, and on the calendars of the church, it's like they've got that image of Jesus and he's sort of like this fair head. It's that old, you know, 200-year-old thing. And he's got blonde hair and he kind of looks girly, actually, to be honest with you. Do I appreciate that? No, because it's saying something about the Jesus that I care for. It's saying, you know, this Jesus is never going to judge you. This Jesus is not really a king. This Jesus is not really interested in punishing those who sin and in saving those who are righteous of heart. It's saying that Jesus is such a soft and kind of effeminate person that doesn't really care and is just mushy and wants to goo all over you. And I say, that is a false Christ. Because the real Jesus is an absolute king who, it says, will judge the nations with a rod of iron. My goodness. This is the Jesus that we no longer preach. You see, to whom, you know, those uh, for whom much is forgiven, they are the ones whose hearts are full of what? Gratitude. The people who know deeply their sin, they become the most zealous Christians when they repent. Why? Because they saw how terrible they were and they go, wow, I've been forgiven of so much in gratitude. How can I serve you, God? Can I I, um, do something more for you, God? You never have to beat these people up to get them to the prayer meeting or to, you know, doing other stuff. Why? They are so full of gratitude and love towards God because whoever, you know, is aware of their sin, you could say, and is cleansed of it, that's where the gratitude comes. We're not preaching sin. People don't know their sin anymore. We're scared to do it. We need bold preachers back. Frankly, we need a great depression to take us back to the Stone Age and maybe we'll have a chance. 
We're living in Disney World. We're literally living in Disney World. It's where we live. We're going around trying to convert Disney World people and say, here, we've got Jesus over here. He's competing with your iPhone, your Xbox, your, um, you know, your uh, Sports Illustrated, your, uh, you know, whatever it is. I mean, your constant, constant entertainment and ear tickling. He's trying to compete with all that because you people live in Disney World and so do I. Amen? So somehow in this materialistic culture, we've got to get the preachers back and maybe they're going to all end up overseas preaching to the hungry. You know, and this is another thing. I was just preaching last night and talking to a bunch of uh, mature Christians, I'm sure, you know, like you guys are, been long time in the Lord, been well taught. And I was saying to them, listen, man, get overseas. Because overseas, the stuff that you know is like precious gold. And you're, you're more wise if you've been sitting under good teaching for five years than, let's say, 60% of the, or 70% of the pastors over there that are, preach, you know, that are pastoring two or 300 people. Most of them know hardly anything, and, the most, and what they're preaching is prosperity gospel and blessing, 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 which is all they hear from their television over there. Anyway, let me not get on that topic. Oh, my goodness. Um, let's make this personal again, okay? We started with a parable from Jesus. The very following parable is the parable of the unprofitable servant. What happens with that one? Well, it says that the husbandman goes away. What's he leaving? He's leaving talents with his servants. What does the unprofitable servant do with his talent? It says he buries it in the ground. What does Jesus say to the unprofitable servant when he gets back? And he gives rewards to those who have faithfully been about the master's business. He says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and inherit everything I've prepared for you. What does he say to the unprofitable servant? Depart from me. So same familiar words. Depart from me. Right? This guy has thinking that he's going to save himself and at least he's going to be able to give the talent to Jesus that he was given in the first place. He says, surely he'll be happy with that. No, he's not. It says he is cast out into, um, what's the word? The, the darkness anyway. Oh, goodness. Somebody knows the word? Outer. outer darkness. He's cast into outer darkness where there is wailing and, and gnashing of teeth. Is the unprofitable servant a Christian? Absolutely. He was a servant of the Lord that was given gifts before the master goes away on his journey. He's absolutely a Christian person, absolutely a church person. What just happened to him? He's been cast out with all of the murderers and rapists. That's where he's ended up. God is not the friendly, happy, clappy dude that we think he is. He is literally the king upon a throne. He will judge with a rod of iron. He will speak in such way, I believe, his voice will thunder on the day of judgment. People will be absolutely petrified. We do not want to be petrified with those people. 
We do not want to be afraid to stand before God. What did Elijah say about himself? I think one of the most significant things that Elijah said was this. The Lord God before whom I stand. Why is that significant? Because nobody stands before God except his most closest servants. Amen? There ain't nobody that stands. You get in in the presence of God, you're on your face, or if you could get lower, you would. Nobody stands. When Elijah says that, what is he saying about himself? He's talking positionally about where he stands and the fact of what is going to happen if his word is ignored. That consequences will follow from the throne of God. Why? Because the Lord God before whom I stand. That's who's backing him, right? It's a fearful thing to say especially if it's not true. But in this case, of course, it was. So what does God do? Abs, you know, unbelievable things. Judgments fall at his word, right? So we want to be literally friends of God, not in that sappy way, but because we have been made so clean that we really are his friends. That's the true place to be. If there's people today, let me just digress into this for for five seconds here. If there's people today who, when you look at that foundation, your foundation is not complete, which many, many people are today. I go around churches, I mean, I was shocked this morning. We had a talk on foundations, and lo and behold, and we had a kind of an altar call thing at the end, and people came forward for prayer, and lo and behold, foundations were missing out of their lives. And I'm talking about those six basic foundations. In the Bible, do you realize all six foundations would mostly be laid on the first day? Now, here's the foundations again. You can check me later on, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, they're all listed there. So repentance is the first one. Faith, we have no problem with that. Baptism. Thousands of Christians around this country and around my country have not been baptized as a believer. Do you realize what Romans chapter 6 says about baptism? And I preach this very strongly is this. Baptism is the burial of your old life. Baptism is the death and burial. That's what Romans chapter 6 verse 3 says. It says, do you not know that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. What does it do? It cuts off the old man. That's what it's designed to do. Because we're supposed to get baptized in faith. We don't just get baptized as a ceremony. In fact, the more stronger I preach that it's in faith and that it's a real burial and a real death of your old life, the more powerful it always is. Because people go, yes, I can take hold of that by faith, that today my whole past and my whole old life will be buried with him in baptism. Praise God I can get rid of that garbage by repenting and then getting baptized in water. So how many people, you know, I had a friend, he was actually from Australia, he was in ministry, um, he was in like a prophetic ministry and had been traveling the country preaching and one day he said to me, you know Andrew, uh, I've never been baptized in water. He said, uh, you know, I was sprinkled as a baby, but he said, as a believer, I've never been baptized in water. I said, 
you've been pre- you've been preaching around you know for years preaching around the country i mean what he went and got himself baptized praise god because i was emphasizing it in my writings and things you know stuff that i was writing hey baptism is not to be fooled around with this is not a light and airy thing god is not a light and airy god These things are important. And not only that, it's one of the six foundations. What's the next foundation? Laying on of hands. In the book of Acts, why would you get laying on of hands? To get filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I was depressed and terribly suicidal for four years before the day when I was 17 years old, when I went round to this guy's place who'd been praying for my friends one by one, and they'd all been getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and I saw tremendous change in them. So finally I got to the end of myself. I I said, you know, I truly surrendered to God, and I went round to this guy um, and said, please pray for me like you've been praying for my friends to get filled with the Holy Spirit, because the change was so dramatic. And... uh, I, before that, was so casual about Christianity and, in fact, really in a totally backslidden and, I would dare say, unchristian state because I wasn't fully surrendered to God. I was living my life for myself. I was a typical teenager and I was on my way out, not on my way in. But God convicted me, got hold of me just in time and grabbed me and and I went went round to that guy's place. I, I knew for a fact I have to get filled with the Holy Spirit. He prayed the most simple prayer with laying on of hands. Totally biblical to do that, of course. This would happen on the first day in the Bible. In the book of Acts, all the way through, you'll find repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, all happens on the first day. What happened to me? I got filled with the Holy Spirit with the most simple prayer you could imagine. Following day, I spoke in tongues for the first time. I was so incredibly different in one day. So totally changed. This is a biblical foundation we're talking about. So the six things are repentance, faith, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Six foundations. What happens if we have pieces of our foundation missing? Well, quite frankly, I don't like your chances. You can chance it if you wish. Up to you. But I put it to you that every foundation is incredibly important. Every foundation is very, very powerful. Sometimes these days, because we actually emphasize um, you know, death and burial in baptism, we see people getting delivered of demons. The first time I've ever seen this happen is only very recently. We see people um, manifesting demons sometimes, and demons are getting cast out of them in the baptismal. I've never seen that before. Why is that happening? Because demons cannot survive the death and cutting off of a person. Okay, When you're doing that, when you're, di- when you're dying with Christ and being buried with Christ and your old life is literally cut off, the devil, if this is done in faith as it's supposed to be, and if we explain it correctly to people and they really grab hold of it, do you know what? The devil can't survive that process. The picture of it is this, is when, you know, and the New Testament refers to this as a parable of baptism, right? Think of the uh, 
armies of Egypt are trying to follow Moses through the, the uh, Red Sea, what's going to happen to them? They get obliterated in that sea. This is a picture of baptism and of the demons and uh, just darkness and sin and garbage that's trying to hold on to the people of God, what's happening to them. They are ridding themselves of all of that. Why? Because they take baptism by faith the way it's supposed to be taken. And we see tremendously powerful baptisms unlike what we ever used to now because we emphasize that fact. Right, So every one of the foundations is designed to pull you out of sin and get you clean and get you empowered to lead a true Christian life. And when we preach the foundations that way, man, they have impact. Boy, oh boy. So, in closing, the issue I really want to deal with is our heart issue today. Okay, um, The foundations, these are things... Can, can I just say this to you about foundations? If you know that there is a or two foundations or whatever it is that is not complete in you, if you have left those things out or put them to one side for a number of years and you go, oh my goodness, that's quite a long time ago, I thought I would have done it by now or I thought I would have that piece in place by now, if you've not been filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've not been baptized as a believer, because it's believer's baptism, that's what it's called, right? Believer's baptism. Um, if you've not truly repented of your sins, right? These are foundations. They cannot be avoided. We do so at our peril, literally at our peril, okay? Make sure your foundation is full. Make sure you're preaching a full gospel, do you know in the old days, what were Pentecostal preachers called? Full gospel preachers. If you'd have asked, um, if you'd have asked Frank Bartleman you know, of the Azusa Street Revival, or if you'd gone to Smith Wigglesworth and said, what kind of preacher are you? They would say, I'm a full gospel preacher. What did that mean? It means that you cover the whole foundation. You make sure it's there. You know what you're doing. The apostles always knew how to lay a good foundation. So in closing, what I'd like to do is just, we're going to deal with the heart issues today and we're going to pray about that in closing. So if there's something that you know is a secret thing or a hidden thing or a spot on that robe, those are the things I want to pray about for us today. So just stand with me. I'm going to pray on all of our behalf, literally about those things. If there's something in your life that you know is of darkness or you know is of sin, if there's a spot on that robe, if there's something you have not dealt with between you and God, what I'd like you to do is when the moment comes in this prayer, just whisper those things because what does it say in the Bible? If we confess our sins, it's talking to Christians by the way, this verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, but not just that, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's a promise of God. And we need that um, if, that's, if there's anything, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for all of us. 
And in that moment, just if there's like three things or two things that God is laying on your heart, I want you to just whisper that to God and confess it to God and say, God, I turn from those things and please cleanse me, Father. Okay? So in the middle of this prayer, we'll do that. Uh, if you agree with... Um, If you agree with this prayer and you want to participate in it, please raise your hands to heaven right now. We're just going to raise our hands and we're going to call on God. Father, we just pray. I pray for every person in here at this moment, Father God. Father, we come to you with absolute sincerity and seriousness, Father. Because today is a day we want to confess sin to you. We want to be utterly clean. We don't want to be a foolish virgin that gets um, literally cast away at the very moment we should be entering your kingdom. Father, we want to be the wise virgins. We want to be literally in there for eternity with you. We want clean white robes, Father, washed in the blood of Jesus. So, Father, today we come to you with things that we have done or things that we have been doing or things that are on our conscience, O God. And, Father, as we speak these things to you and confess them to you, we ask that you would cleanse and wash these things away. So, Father, right now we just confess these specific things to you, Father. I'll just give a moment for that. And Father, in turning from these things, we ask that you'd cleanse us today. In confessing them to you, we ask that you'd cleanse us, make us a truly righteous on the inside people, Father. A holy nation, O God. A people who walk in cleanness of conscience and heart before you. A pure-hearted people, Father. Father, I pray that that would be the washing that takes place in us today. Change us. Give us good foundations if there's foundations missing, O God. Let all of the foundations be there in our lives, O God. And let us walk with you like Adam did. Let us walk close to you, free of condemnation, knowing fully that we've been made right with a holy God. Thank you, Father, for your cleansing. Thank you, God, for Jesus and for the price he paid to get us clean. Thank you, God. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And bless you.